0: We're continuing uh, our summer series in the book of Psalms, and we are on Psalm 51 this morning. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up. and um, Let me encourage you, those who, who own a Bible, to so go ahead and bring it to worship. It's always nice. We print the scriptures in our bulletin as well, but it's always nice to be able to have your own Bible open on your lap to be following along. Before uh, I read, I'm going to give you just a little bit of background Psalm 51 comes out of a very particular context. It's one that we've talked about before. In fact, if you were with us this last Advent, we looked very specifically at David and his sin against and with Bathsheba. And Psalm 51 is written out of that context. Let me refresh you really quickly. David, who is the king of Israel, who is meant to protect Israel both physically and spiritually, sees Bathsheba, whose husband is off to war fighting in David's army. And he sees her on her roof bathing, and he desires to have her. So he sends his guards down to take her and to bring her to him. And then after his adultery, in order to cover up his sin, he tries quite a few things to cover it up, finally culminating in having her husband killed. It's really David at his worst in the Bible. It's David covering. It's David uh, doing everything that he can to cover his own sin. Uh, you remember Lance Armstrong, right? This is what Esquire magazine said about Lance Armstrong. They said he was the greatest cheater of all time who doped and bullied other bikers to dope and sued or harassed people for telling the truth about him. That's a pretty decent description of David as well, except sued and harassed. Let's go ahead and put murdered in there. There's our first pit, the first little bit of background. The second one, though, is really interesting, too, is that the Psalms were public songs, public prayers, public poems, most oftentimes set to music, so that God's people would be singing them. And if you look and see in your Bible, there's an inscription before the Psalm that actually talks about this context. David has written this psalm, and he has put the context right there in front of everybody to read and to sing and to proclaim over and over and over. Just think about how crazy this is. This would be like uh, the nation of America singing a song or reading together a famous poem with the inscription, Written by Donald Trump after his adultery with Stormy Daniels. Or written by Bill Clinton after his affair with Monica Lewinsky. Can you imagine how crazy that would be? So what is it that makes a man go from the ultimate cover-up to the ultimate transparency? Well, we're about to read about it. It's called repentance. It's a very important theological word and one that we're going to dig into today. So, if you will, open your Bibles up to Psalm 51 and follow along with me. And my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, and then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, whole burnt offerings, and bulls will be offered on your altar." This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, this is, a, this is a big psalm. It weighs heavy in your word. It may weigh heavy on some of our hearts. Lord, the concepts that we are about to talk about are important. They're weighty. They're difficult even. And so, Lord, we ask that your spirit would be present among us, uh, that you would give me the words to say, that you would illuminate your word for all of us, that we might see it more clearly so that we might be changed by it, so we might come to know you more, uh, more fully, better than we do now, so we might come to see your goodness and your grace more clearly, so that we might come to see even our sin more deeply and desire to turn from it. We ask you to be with us as we open your word this morning, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like I said, we are going to talk about repentance, the concept of repentance. In fact, if you'll see in your bulletin, I've titled the sermon, What is Repentance? If you're not a regular churchgoer, that may not be a really familiar word to you. It's kind of a big theological word. But really at the heart of what that word is, is something that we all deal with. There are a few basic, I believe, human questions, questions that human beings, all of us deal with, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, we all deal with some really fundamental questions. And one of those questions is, how do I change? How can I change who I am? How can I be a better version of myself? Can I be a better husband or father or friend or coworker or whatever it is? How is it that I change? And that word change is really what's at the heart of the word repentance. Because it, repentance really means to turn from one thing to another. I well, want you to listen to this quote from a theologian named Anthony Hucuma. He says, Repentance is the conscious turning of the regenerate person away from sin and toward God in a complete change of living, which reveals itself in a new way of thinking, feeling, and willing. Said more simply, repentance is turning from self and sin and turning to Jesus. It is turning away from my self desires, away from the desire to fill my needs by myself. To fill myself with my own comfort, to fill myself with power, to fill myself with acceptance from others, to fill myself with ease so that I might feel like I'm okay. It's turning away from those things and turning to Jesus for forgiveness, for love, and for guidance and leadership. That is what repentance is. It is turning from ourself and from our sin and turning to Jesus. We're going to look at kind of five angles of that this morning. Five things that really describe and answer for us what is repentance. What does repentance look like? And let me just caveat this really quickly by saying, you'll hear me say this a few times probably this morning, but when we talk about repentance, we are talking about both what initially sparks in your heart to turn you to Jesus if you don't know him, and and maybe more importantly for many of us gathered here, We are talking about what happens continually in the Christian life, what it looks like for a Christian to turn from himself or herself and to Jesus. So let's look at these five things that describe for us what repentance is. Here's the first thing is that repentance, at least true repentance, is deep repentance. True repentance in the Bible is deep and real repentance. Look at verse two again. David says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. These words that he's using to wash me are words that would not have meant kind of spot clean, right? Take a little rag and run because you got a little drip on there and most of the garment is clean, but we're going to get a little bit of that dirt off. No, it's talking about washing a garment fully, completely. In that time, it would have been kind of, tread upon, right? They would have, uh, immersed it in water and beaten it kind of to get all the dirt out and then probably bleached it after that. So we're talking about a holistic cleansing that's going on. Listen, what else he says, uh, in verse five and six, five and six, he says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. What he's getting at there is that repentance, deep repentance, is repenting not just of our actions, but actually about something deeper, our motivations, our desires, and yes, even who we are. Now, again, if you're not used to hearing these things in church, this may come as a shock to you that David is saying, even as I was in my mother's womb, there was something wrong with me. There's something broken about my heart that needs cleansing, not just my actions, but actually who I am, my person, my heart. Now, we oftentimes, as Americans, have just the opposite understanding of ourselves. Uh, It's oftentimes thought, you know, it, it, it has been thought in the past probably 50 years, that the biggest problem with people was they just didn't think highly enough about themselves. And so there's been just this an enormous infusion of kind of positive thinking, uh, mentality, and preaching that goes that goes into everybody. Because we thought the, I the, the way that we need to build people up is that they need to think more of themselves than they have before. Well, let me just tell you that it has worked. The average person thinks really, really highly of himself or herself. Maybe you've heard of this uh, phenomenon called the Lake Wobegon effect. Lake Wobegon is this uh, fictional town made out by Garrison Keillor um, in his radio show. Um, and he talks about Lake Wobegon as being the place where, I think he says, uh, the women are strong and the men are good looking and all the children are above average. So the Lake Wobegon effect is the thinking that we are all above average. And it's, it's a real psychological thing that scientists have come and said after, after the studies that we do, what is true is that people actually think themselves better than they actually are. I will to read you some uh, statistics here. There's been uh, lots of studies done about this kind of thing. Here's one of them. Out of a million, it's a big study, one million high school students, they were asked the question, how do how well do you get along with your peers? So how good are you at kind of being a person who who gets along and who loves everybody? Like, what kind of great high school student are you? None. Zero percent of them rated themselves below average. Remember, average is below 50%, okay? None of them thought that they were below average. 60% of them put themselves in the top 10%. 25% of themselves put them in the top 1%. I'm not a math guy, but that doesn't really add up to me. You would think college professors maybe would be better at this. But in asked to raid their own abilities... 2% of them, 2% of college professors rated themselves below average. That's better than the high school students, but only by 2%. 25% of them said they were truly exceptional. Top 1%. How about this one? 2014 study of British prisoners. Okay, these are These are people who are incarcerated. They said that compared to the average prisoner, they rated themselves as more moral, more compassionate, more loving, more law abiding, better people than the average, the average prisoner. And get this, this is the even better part. They also related themselves, they also rated themselves higher on all of those things except, uh, than the average citizen, with the exception of obeying the law and keeping themselves out of jail. So, except for keeping themselves out of jail, they were better than every other citizen in Great Britain. That's how they saw themselves. Here's another example. A recent study identified uh, greed as the most urgent kind of problem in America. The question was asked, what do you think is the biggest problem in America? What's the most urgent problem we have to deal with? And it kind of listed out this list of sins. And number one on the list was greed. Greed is the thing that we've got to get rid of. It's the biggest problem. It's taking over our country. But in a similar study, a poll was done to ask, which of the seven deadly sins do you deal with the most? Which of you committed? Which of you committed in the past year? Which of you committed in the past month? Greed came up number seven. Out of seven, dead last. It's her biggest problem. But it's not my problem. I want you to listen to this satirical Version of this prayer of confession that I think gets to the heart of things if you're familiar maybe with the book of common prayer if you've ever been in an Anglican or Episcopal church and you've said this prayer you know father forgive me right it starts and said we've erred and we've strayed from your ways like lost sheep we have turned too much to the devices and desires of our own hearts that's how the prayer starts I want you to listen to this version that was written not too long ago. Benevolent and easygoing parent, we have occasionally had some minor errors in judgment, but they're not really our fault. Due to forces beyond our control, we have sometimes failed to act in accordance with our own best interests. Under the circumstances, we did the best that we could. We're glad to say that we're doing okay, perhaps even slightly above average. Be your own sweet self with those who know that they're not perfect and grant us that we may continue to live a harmless and happy life and to keep our self-respect. And we ask all these things according to the unlimited tolerances which we have a right to expect from you. Amen. Friends, let me just say, if your view of yourself... Is one who simply has a right to expect unlimited tolerance from God. And who views yourself as one of those who is just above average and doesn't really need a lot of help. Maybe a little, a little push every now and then, a little bit of help every now and then, but really I'm doing okay. If that's the way that you view yourself, then you will never understand repentance. And what's more, you will never understand Jesus. Flannery O'Connor has this great quote that she puts on the lips of one of her characters where she says of him that there was a deep, wordless conviction that the way to stay away from Jesus was to stay away from sin. See, if we convince ourselves that we are above sin, then we will also convince ourselves that we are above the need for a Savior. But if you see yourself as spiritually bankrupt, as empty, as one who is in total need, then you will not only rightly understand repentance, but you will actually see Jesus and his love and his grace and his mercy in its abundance. Tim Keller says, uh, the best news you could ever hear is that it's a lot worse than you thought it was. That is true. That is the place that we've got to start if we're going to talk about repentance, that it is deep, That we need to repent not simply of what we do, but even of who we are. All right, let's move in to number two here. Is that true repentance is not just deep repentance, but it is continual repentance? True repentance is not just a one-time thing, but it is continual. Look at verses sixteen and seventeen in your Bible. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Friends, what David is saying is that repentance is not simply about kind of going through the motions, about doing kind of the appropriate religious expectations in order to fit the need, in order you might feel good. It's not a checkbox. It is actually a lifestyle Repentance is something that is embedded into our hearts so that we might actually come to Jesus over and over, realizing more and more deeply our need for him. Rather than coming to him as a checkbox to make us feel like we've done the right thing, like we've kind of gotten rid of that religious part of our life now that we can move on. Repentance is actually something that is continual, that happens all the time. The Christian life doesn't just start with the gospel. It is saturated with the gospel. See, oftentimes when we're converted, we think we see Jesus in his clearly in his beauty, in his glory, in what he's done for us. We see the amount of our sin, and we see that he's taken it. But friends, we've got to see that all the time. See, repentance—if you are not a Christian—is the turning from yourself and turning to Jesus, the seeing of yourself as bankrupt and in need. Seeing the holiness of God and seeing the unholiness of yourself and seeing that there's a really big gap between them and somebody who's not you has got to fill that gap. And as you open up the Bible, what you see is revealed is that who Jesus is. He is the one who fills that gap, who is righteous himself and gives us his righteousness through his death and resurrection on our behalf. Not because of what we do, but because of what he has done. If you've never heard about what being a Christian is, that's it, okay? That is what it means to become a Christian, to see our need for Jesus, to see that we cannot get to God on our own, and to see that Jesus has actually fulfilled it simply by his love and grace, okay? That's what it means to become a Christian. But here's something really important. Please listen to this. That is also what it means to live the Christian life. The Christian life is saturated with the gospel, It is saturated with the understanding of our need for the cleansing grace of Christ and the proclamation and the praise that he has given it to us. If you have ever met a really mature Christian, and many of you have, because there are many people in this room who are very mature Christians, and I guarantee that you've had the experience every single time, is that they know their need more deeply, not less, than the really young Christians that you've met. What it means to grow in Christ is to grow in our understanding of our need for him. And to grow more fully in our understanding of what he's done for us. Repentance is continual. Listen, again, I mentioned the um, Prairie Home Companion, Garrison Keeler, <clears throat> earlier. This is one of the characters actually on that radio show, the Lake Wobegon thing. One of the characters' names is Larry the Sad Boy. He says this about Larry. Larry was saved 12 times in the Lutheran church, an all-time record. Between 1953 and 1961, he threw himself weeping and contrite on God's throne of grace on 12 separate occasions. And this is in a Lutheran church that wasn't evangelical, had no altar call, no organist playing just as I am without one plea while a choir hummed and a guy with shiny hair took hold of your heartstrings and played you like a cheap guitar. No, this was a Lutheran church, not a bunch of hillbillies. These are Scandinavians. They repent the same way that they sin, discreetly, tastefully, and at the proper time. Twelve times. Even we fundamentalists got tired of him. God did not mean for us to feel guilt all of our lives. There comes a point when you should dry your tears and join the building committee and start grappling with the problems of the church furnace and make coffee and be of use. But Larry kept on repenting and repenting. It's funny, but it also gets, I think, sometimes at the way that we view the Christian life. Because the truth is, yeah, get busy, join the building committee, make coffee for the church, get to work, and keep repenting and repenting. That is what the Christian life is built on, continual repentance. All right, here's the third thing. True repentance is not just deep and continual, but it is truly transformative. Turn to verse 10 of Psalm 51. David says, "Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me." Listen. There is a difference between uh, two words that sound very similar: uh, the word repentance that we're using today and the word remorse. Sometimes we get to conf- we confuse those two, but they really are different. Remorse is included in repentance, but it has a different outlook. In remorse, what's happening is we are actually looking backward, typically in shame, to our sin. Repentance is different. We look forward in hope, in hope of what God is doing, in anticipation of change and in desire to follow. That's what repentance is, turning from ourself and sin and turning to Jesus. And that is all about what God actually does in us. That change that happens in us is actually a God-created change, a God-created transformation. When David says, create in me a clean heart, that word create in Hebrew is the word barah. It is a word that is only used in the Bible with God as its subject. When you open up Genesis 1, the very first words of the Bible, in the beginning, God created. See, the creating that happens in our hearts when we repent is the same kind of creation that happens as God speaks everything into, the be- into being out of nothing. It is God creation. It is miraculous creation. It is out of nothing creation. That's what happens. When we turn away from our sin and we turn to the Lord, it is the Lord who works in our hearts to create something new. To transform us from those with a heart of stone into those with a heart of flesh. To change us from those who are always worried about our appearance before others. Who are always going through every thought and action wondering how are other people going to think about me? It changes that person into somebody who is actually pouring out for others. It says, what would it look like for me then to do everything that I do? Not to gain acceptance, but to actually serve. It changes men whose only desire is to accumulate things to themselves, power and money and control, so that I can look and feel better than my neighbor who doesn't have those things. It changes that kind of man into the one who comes and says, what does it look like then for me uh, to use all that God has given me for the benefit of others, for the benefit of his kingdom, for his glory, and for the serving and salvation of those around me? That is what happens. That is the transformative work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And that is part of what repentance is is the transforming of who we truly are. Fourth, we'll keep moving on. Not only is it truly transformative, but true repentance is gospel motivated. It is motivated by the good news of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1. This is how David starts everything. Have mercy on me, O God, according to my fear of you, according to the fact that I've got to do this because it's my duty, according to as we said in that earlier confession you know it's just kind of your job you're supposed to do this for me no listen to what he says have mercy on me o god according to your steadfast love according to your abundant mercy those two terms are really important that first one, steadfast love, is a really important Hebrew word in the Old Testament. It's the word hesed. And it is used all throughout to show God's covenant loving faithfulness to his people. It is this word that's really hard to translate. Because it's like love wrapped in mercy with faithfulness thrown on top. And this amazing personal uh, uh, familial type of action happening to it. God, the one who has married himself to his people, has said, I love you. I'm yours forever. You are mine. I'm never going to let you go. We sang of that just a little while ago. A love that will not let me go. That is what hesed means. A love that will not let us go. That is the foundation then for what it looks like for us to come to the Lord in repentance. And then look at the next term that he uses. He says, according to your abundant mercy, the NIV actually says, great compassion. It is the great compassion and mercy of the Lord that we throw ourselves on. That's the foundation for coming to the Lord in repentance. It's not fear. It's not duty. It's not even the fact that God owes us something. It is simply the fact that God is loving, compassionate, faithful, and kind. That's the foundation for us for repentance. That's the motivation. And then here's the fifth one. Is that not only is true repentance gospel motivated, but it's actually gospel proclaiming as well. I want you to look at verses 13 through 15. David says, then, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation. And then my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. See, how does all this end? What's the result of all of this? It's praise as proclamation. It is a mouth that is open to say, look at what the Lord has done for me. When there is a deep understanding of our need, when that deep understanding resonates in us continually, guess what? It gives us a deep voice to proclaim the Lord's grace and mercy. To open our mouths and declare his praise. And we're not talking about... We oftentimes think of of repentance the same way that we think of remorse. Like we're just kind of feeling guilty all the time. Like we're these people who are just kind of dour and walking with our heads down. And our feet shuffling and we've got kind of a black cape on. And that's what it means to be a Christian. is somebody who kind of beats themselves up a lot. That could be no further from the truth. What David says is that the product of true repentance is real, reverberating praise. And it's also proclamation to others to say, look at what the Lord has done to me. Again, this is the same David who wrote this, who had deeply, who'd murdered, who'd committed adultery, I would even say rape, and had murdered. All of that kind of wrapped up into the one. And now we have this David who is completely transparent because the weight has been lifted from his shoulders. He no longer carries it. He doesn't beat himself up because he no longer carries that sin. What he carries is the understanding that Jesus has forgiven him. That God has forgiven him of his sin. And so his mouth is open then to praise. Let me just close with this. Um, I'm sure you've seen uh, the show Fixer Upper. Right? This couple who has pretty much built Waco, um, you know, and the show Fixer Upper, that, that's a, it's a really fun show. You have usually some young couple looking for their first house, and they ask Chip and what's her name? Joanna. Joanna. They ask Chip and Joanna uh, to find them a great house. And of course, they always find this house that needs tons of work. And there's two things, there's two kind of themes, I think, that really run through this show that are always apparent. And the first is that there's always something a lot more wrong than the people knew, right? There's always this turning point in the show where Chip kind of turns to Joanna and goes, Ooh, babe, I got some bad news, right? Um, You know, there is a nest of like 3,000 armadillos living underneath this house or, you know, something really weird, right? And where he says, like, the problem is a whole lot worse than we thought it was. That's one theme. And the second one is that it is always so much better than the homeowners ever expected it to be. You have this reveal, and always their faces are that this shows like I could have never dreamed, I could have never dreamed it would be this great. That's a good description, I think, of repentance. It goes a lot deeper than we want it to. It cuts a lot deeper. It hurts probably more than we would like. But seeing the Lord transform is so much more glorious than we could imagine. The transformation that takes place is like nothing we could ever dream. It is only the Lord who can transform those things. So all of us today, let us say together, open our lips, Lord, that our mouths might declare your praise, they might declare my deep need and your deep forgiveness. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, it's a good time simply to just confess that we need you. We are um, we are here singing your praises, learning from your word, and we oftentimes um, we really we really try to do it well. We try to pay attention to what we're doing, and we try to do it excellently. But Lord, please don't ever let us lose sight of the fact that we're in a hospital. We're only here because we're sick. We're only here because we're in really deep need. And we're here because, look, this is where healing takes place. It is you, the great physician, who has come to heal us or show us what it looks like to truly repent this morning and be at work in our hearts even now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.